Okay, swap them around. Question number one. What does the term protoevangelium or protoevangelium mean and what passage of scripture is it referencing? What does it mean? First gospel, gospel protoevangelium or first mention of the gospel, first evangelism, first evangel might work, first gospel. Anything else come up? When first good news counts. Yes, first good news is fine. That is very literal. I'll take it. Uh, uh, Genesis 3, what, 15? Do you guys have Genesis 3, 15? Do you is have the... credit for that question? You do. You get half credit if you get part of it. <clears throat> so if you, get, if you don't get the verse, it's okay. You get half wrong. Well, he got the verse. Just didn't get the... What did you put? In my mind, I could see the title over it. And so I literally just put Virgin Birth. Virgin Birth? Oh, I see. Yeah, no, that's, that's okay. Protoevangelum. Uh, true or false, the eternality of Christ is directly linked with his deity. If his, etern- if his deity is established, then he must also be eternal. <clears throat> what did you say to that? True. True or false? Yes, that's correct, true. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> the actual words of Christ make up more than half the material in the Gospels. True. True. These are like word for word from your quizzes. I, I hope you appreciated that. See, I told you it wouldn't be that hard. I told you it wouldn't be that hard. Um, what is the term that means, uh-oh, is somebody coming through there or, hi David, how are you? This like wall is slanted for some reason, okay. <clears throat> Got to push it in, right? What is the term that means in flesh and denotes the act whereby the eternal son of God took to himself an additional nature that is humanity through the virgin birth? No. Incarnation. Yeah, incarnation. In flesh. That's the bolded term. Incarnation. Incarnation. In flesh. What is the term that may be defined as the second person, the pre-incarnate Christ, came and took to himself a human nature and remains forever, undiminished deity and true humanity, united one person forever? That is hypostatic union. List one verse or biblical proof. That means you don't have to have... A verse, just an idea, a biblical proof, if that makes sense, that speaks to the humanity of Christ. What do you have? Physical needs for food, absolutely. Anybody put Luke 2.52? Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. That was what I was thinking. I can't remember. Did anybody have anything besides like something like that? Birth. Birth, yeah, yeah, his birth. Absolutely. I was, I was thinking of the Luke 2 one, but I put... What did you put? I put Luke 4.24. I, I was thinking of the... Luke 4.24. Is that not, legit? Just it, it, has, it has nothing to do with it. It's a thought that counts. The 424 stuff in my 252, 424, yeah, no. Just put a little X. That's what my professor used to say. He said, just put a little X. As if that makes it easier. Less one verse that speaks to the deity of Christ. Everybody put John 1 1, right? Basically? Okay, that's what most people would put. Multiple choice. Which of the following is not an aspect or result of Christ's death? Impeccability. Impeccability. F. True or false? Mary was a virgin but became pregnant prior to the time when she and Joseph lived together and remained a virgin until after the birth of Christ. The answer to that is true. true. And then number 10, 
is one of my Pastor Marshall questions, which means it doesn't matter what you put there, it's right. You win. So it's, you well, win. I gave you a little compliment in there. So. Oh, that's oh, so I nice. I had a good teacher, period. <laughs> <laughs> you don't get extra credit for fluffing up the tea for a thing. Now, if you draw a picture of me, I might crown off. <laughs> I don't know if I'll allow that. Pictures, no, but nice words, maybe. Okay. Write a number correct at the top, pass it in. Half credit for the uh, ones that have two parts. And uh, thank you very much. I should have just put it. I should just take one and pass it. I was thinking of the Take one, take one and pass it. Yeah, I was. That's the idea. I was thinking. I don't know the verse. Okay, um, let's, we're going to try to handle the rest of Christology tonight. Uh, the might, we might be a little truncated uh, due to I want to spend about five minutes feedback on your projects. What Did you learn anything? Anything you feel like was fun about your project that you didn't anticipate? What, what did you learn that you did not know before? Anything in particular you want to share with the group? Hopefully nobody became an Aryan, right? <laughs> that would be... I, I, just, I couldn't find any evidence. Uh, I was thinking, maybe, they're, maybe they're not wrong. <laughs> we had a class project when I was in theology class and seminary where we did a debate where one side took the Aryan side and one side took the Trinitarian side. And uh, it was a lot of fun. I was on an Aryan side, so I had a... Did you win? No, I don't think so, because we're unbiblical. You can't win. It's, you know. But it, 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 it's good, right? I mean, it's helpful to like, read and understand, try to understand, articulate, and hopefully clarify your thinking on these things. Um, any, any thoughts, comments? I went a different way on my third paragraph. Um, not different, just yeah. what we hadn't really talked about. I know you said run it by you first, but... Mm-hmm. Um, it was uh, striking to me that the apostles would, would die unto death. Oh, yeah. Um, and they wouldn't do that for a man. Right. Not just a man. Right. And, uh, That's like an historical argument. Like, right? Yeah, it's interesting. That's a really good argument um, for, for uh, the, the authenticity of Christ, that you have these guys who, even his brother, James, mm-hmm. you know, and you think about it. If you grow up, you, if your brother claimed to be God, would you believe him or die for him? And most of us would be like, are you kidding? Like, I grew up with the guy. I know what he's like. And you see James, the brother of Christ, becoming a um, very important person. He becomes uh, he's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Um, he's a believer. He writes a book of the Bible. Um, calls himself, you know, uh, a servant of Christ. It's pretty incredible. Uh, so yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. I- I'm looking forward to reading your papers. I'll try to get them back to you as soon as I can. Um, give me a couple weeks. Uh, we do have a class off next week due to missions conference, but I will try to get through them as soon as I can. Okay. Okay. Today our goal is to get through earthly life of Christ, uh, temptation of Christ, offices of Christ, present ministry of Christ, future work of Christ. So let's jump to the earthly life of Christ. I think that's where we left off, right? Yeah. Talk about the earthly life of Christ. There are two aspects, uh, the words and the works of Christ. Um, so we talked about this, the fact that his words take prime, primacy or primacy. 
Um, if you look at your Bible, if you have a red letter edition, um, which there are positives and negatives to having a red letter edition of the Bible. Um, a positive would be it's easy to see Jesus' words um, in the text. Uh, mine's a red letter. I didn't really have an option. It just came as a red letter. Um, the negative would be that it seems to indicate that like, you can ignore the black letter. I've known some people that call themselves red letter Christians where only Jesus' words are what they go by. But the problem with that is that the whole Bible is inspired, not just the red letters. Um, so it's kind of a, it's, 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 um, so it's a strange uh, group that believes that, but that, there's some that do that. Uh, but anyway, if you, if you look through, you just glance, you see all the red letters, you recognize how much Jesus spoke. And this is important because he's a teaching prophet. The words of Christ are important because as Jesus preaches, and he is a prophet in the, in the, in the, in the sense that he comes like, like, like Moses. Moses says, another prophet's coming after me. He'll be like me and he will, you shall follow him. And so the words of Christ are very, very important. It's not just what he did. It's also what he spoke. He's a speaking a prophet. We should obey his words. Um, and his words are, are uh, demonstrate his authority. You have heard, if you go to Matthew 5 for a second. If you have your Bible, turn there. Uh, you see it over and over again um, in Matthew 5. He begins verse 17 by saying, Do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle by no means pass from all the law till all is fulfilled. In fact, we were just talking about sans serif fonts a minute ago. A bunch of nerds. And um, a jot and a tittle is literally um, a yod, a jot, is the same in Hebrew as yod. There's no J in Hebrew, so ya, o, the. It's the same thing. A jot is a yod, which looks like that. So like the word yom is that. This little thing right here is a jot, okay, a yod. And a tittle is the difference between this word, or this letter, and that letter, okay? Uh, one letter is a T, one letter is a H, so a Tau and a Chet, or a Daleth and a Resh. That's really over-exaggerated. It doesn't look like that. It looks more like, like that. So the difference between these two one being a straight edge, one being curved, is a tittle. It's the smallest distinction between letters. And Jesus says, not one will pass. But then he says this. If you go to um, verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be in danger of the judgment. Who said that? Yeah, I mean, if you look, my Bible is italicized. If you look in your margin, verse 21, do you have a reference there? Cross-reference, Exodus 20, 13. What is that? Ten Commandments. Moses, Ten Commandments. You have, said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you, whoa, that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be danger of the judgment. Jesus takes the Old Testament and he says, you've heard that it was said this, but I tell you. Now he's putting himself, his words on par, actually exceeding the authority of the Old Testament. It's powerful stuff. So he goes through here, especially in Matthew 5, which is like his law giving. He's on the mount, giving the law, blessings and cursings, etc., very much like Moses. 
and the words of God are very important. So, so consider his words demonstrate his authority. His words demonstrate his omniscience. It says in verse uh, John twelve forty nine, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me the command that I should say what I shall speak. He speaks of the coming age. He speaks of the future. He speaks about things that will happen in the, uh, his omniscience, what he knows. He speaks. He knows more than uh, the average man, I should say. He is God. He is Christ. The words of Christ are important, but his works are super important as well. And I, I put this here that his, I think it's in your notes, Jesus' miracles are not showmanship or carnival tricks. His miracles had meaning, especially to those who know the Old Testament. Okay, his works demonstrate he has the authority of God on earth. There's a chart in the book such as stilling the storm. Okay, the works of God is to still the storm. Uh, healing the blind, that's the work of God. Forgiving sins, that's what God does. Raising the dead, that's what God does. Feeding the 5,000, God is the one who feeds. And in fact, over and over again, you see him, um, what I call back, what he calls here, backwards looking meaning of Jesus' works. He is looking back to the Old Testament and what the Bible says that God does, he does. Okay, so Jesus, I just want to make this point that when Jesus does a miracle, it's not like, hey guys, watch this, woohoo, you know, like fancy stuff. And everybody's like, wow, that's amazing. Like, wow, we got to believe you now. Like his miracles have, have a meaning to them. Okay. Um, for example, one of my favorites, this isn't actually mentioned in, in this, I don't think, let me see. Oh, yeah, I guess it is in the next one. The, let's look at the next forward looking. So the backwards looking and the forward looking. The forward looking meaning of Jesus' works have to do with the eschatological. What does eschatological mean? End times. End times. Eschatology is end times. So the end times focus, such as water to wine, joy and gladness, God's taking wine, making, uh, turning water into wine, uh, bounty. There's also an interesting, fascinating. Um, Detail in that story, man, I can't get into all these, but this is so cool. When, when, when they draw, how do you remember the story of the water to wine? What happens? Jesus tells them to fill the water pots to the brim and then they draw and out comes what? Wine. Where do they draw from? Is it the old wine skins? No, that's a different, most people assume they draw from the pitcher. I mean, I'm sorry, from the, from the. Uh, water. So they say, fill up the water buckets with water, right? Fill up the, the, um, the pitchers. The, 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 it's like these urn, these, ca- these things, right? Fill them up with water to the brim. And then he says, draw. And, and it actually, if you study it in the original language, it, it could either be, and I think it's draw from the well. They draw from the well. And out of the well, they bring it up and they pour it out and it's wine. Not water. So it's like, it's not that they are pulling water from the, from the, the things is that they're actually pulling, which is interesting because Jesus comes from the earth and there's a, there's a picture there of him when he, when he raises from the dead kind of coming out. I, I don't know. It's interesting. And I, some people have noted that there's debate because it's unclear where the water comes from. It's not, it doesn't say they drew it from the urn. It's that they drew it and they had been drawing from the well. So I don't know. Another thing is uh, the catch of fish. Okay. This is a repeated miracle. There's, have you ever noticed how many miracles Jesus have to do with fish? Like the, mag- the magnitude of fish. So even at the end of John's gospel, when Jesus sees his apostles and he's, and he's, uh, he's on the side of the, of the beach and they're fishing and they're not catching anything. And Jesus says, throw the nets on the other side. And they do it and they catch an enormous, and they know it's the, they know it's the Lord, right? So, so why so many fish? What's the deal with the fish? 
What do you, what do you think? Well, the apostles were fishermen the first. Okay. The apostles are fishermen, so it's something where they live, yeah. But there's more than that. Is if, if you look in the book of Zechariah, I don't think it's mentioned here. It says in Isaiah 11. It might be there too, I don't know. I don't think it's in Isaiah. Maybe it is. Um, 11.6. Um, no, this is not. It's, it's Zechariah is really where you want to go. So the end of, the end of Zechariah... Uh, I can just look it up here. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what it is. Um, um, I think I thought it was Zechariah. Maybe I'm wrong. Let's see here. Uh, Man, I cannot. Is that not, uh, man, I had it a minute ago. I have to. I have to look. I thought it was. I thought it was Zechariah. I really did. I thought it was the end of the end of Zechariah. There is a prophecy about the um, about the end times coming, and then in the end times there is a great number of fish. There is the healing of the waters, and there's an abundance of fish. It's like it's a really kind of a random detail. I cannot remember where. Maybe it's Isaiah. I'll have to find it. I cannot let this go because this is. I preached on it one time. Is how it's, it's barely in my brain. Um, okay, let me just Google it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, many fish. Isaiah oh, four three. Oh, man. Oh, yeah, Ezekiel 47.10. Maybe that's it. Ezekiel 47.10. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's it, yeah. Ezekiel, not, 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 uh, it's the same prophecy, but just a different place. Ezekiel 47.7, When I returned there at the bank of the river, there are many, many, many trees on the side of the other. Then he said, the water flows towards the eastern region, goes down to the valley, enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. So this is the, the, the Dead Sea. The dead sea will be healed, and it shall be that every living thing that moves wherever the rivers go will live, and there will be a very great multitude of fish, because the waters go there, they will be healed, and everything that lives wherever the river goes. There's this picture of the river of God, and wherever it goes, it is healed. So it's, it's incredible um, that Jesus is constantly doing these, these miracles where there's so many fish. It's pointing to that prophecy there. Uh, storm still, blind healed, raising the dead, etc., all these are prophetic things. So we have to just, I, the main point of this is that I don't want you to think of Jesus' miracles as, as tricks or as just showstoppers. They are purposeful and meaningful. Jesus' witness to the nation concerning his words and his works, his teaching and his miracles, both were attestations of his deity and messiahship. Hence, Jesus reminded John's disciples, go and report to John what you hear and see. That's from the book. There's a rejection of Christ, that Jesus came as Messiah and King to the Jewish nation, but he was rejected by them. They did not accept him. Uh, they instead accused him of being from Satan. We see in 7.4 the death of Christ. His death is a substitution, a vicarious atonement. It's an important word. Um, it would have been a great word to have on your quiz today, uh, but we didn't get to it, so I didn't want to cover it. Vicarious means in the place of another. So Jesus' death on the cross was for us. 
vicarious. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Isaiah 53. The New Testament teaches us in 1 Peter, he himself bore our sins on his own body on the tree. Um, also, uh, we have here uh, a couple, a couple um, Greek words that have to do with this for us, death for us, substitutionary death. The first is anti, and anti just means uh, in the place of or for. So the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Anti, okay. Uh, uper, uper means um, uh, in, the, in the place of, so or because, or for. We see that in a couple places. I have those in your notes there. So a couple uh, important prepositions, uh, Greek prepositions about substitution. There's another aspect of Christ's death, which is redemption. Redemption has to do with being bought. Uh, bought, agorazo, means to buy. Uh, bought with a price. I, I guess I, did I put the English, did I put any Greek in there? No. 7.4.2. Okay, there's two Greek words. One is agorazo, which means to be bought with a price. The idea of being redeemed or bought back. A picture of a slave being bought in a slave market. Uh, lutrosis or apolutrosis means liberated. That's the other idea of redemption. We have redemption through his blood. Colossians 1.14 is the idea of being redeemed or liberated. The third uh, concept here is propitiation. Um, Helasterion uh, has to do with being paid. It's being satisfied, the debt being paid for. Um, Romans 3.25, God sent forth as a propitiation. 1 John chapter 2, also 1 and 2. Christ is our propitiation. Uh, fourth, forgiveness. Uh, Ephesus is releasing. Forgiveness means to release or to liberate uh, from something that confines. Uh, when, you, when Christ forgave us um, of our sin. Okay. He says here that uh, the root word for forgiveness comes from a fi'emi, which is to send away or to forgive. It's an interesting concept. That's from page 247. Justification is the next one. Justification, dikaiao, which means to be declared righteous. Justified is declared righteous. Um, and uh, it has both negative and positive aspects to it. It has the removal of the believer's sins. And the bestowal of Christ's righteousness. That's the death of Christ, the importance of the death of Christ there. The resurrection of Christ is very important in that it determines the validity of the Christian faith. We see that in 1 Corinthians 15. That Paul says, if Christ be not risen, then we are most miserable. We have no hope. Uh, our faith rests on the actual resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It was a guarantee of the Father's acceptance of the Son's work. So we see that in Hebrews 5, 7. Uh, Christ's resurrection proved that his, his death was acceptable to the Father. It was essential in the program of God. John 16, 7, it was necessary. And it fulfilled the prophecies of the resurrection. We see in Matthew 16 and Mark 14 that he said it, it, the, 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 that God prophesied that the, the Son would be raised. And we see that in, in Psalm 16 as well. What are the proofs of the resurrection? Well, there's the empty tomb. Um, I have often, not often debated, but I, when I've debated this with people, I've talked about it with mostly young adults. It seems to be those are the people who want to talk about these things. Um, uh, that Jesus' disciples would have chosen this, the resurrection of their Savior, would have been about the dumbest thing if it didn't actually happen. It would be so easy to prove wrong. Just, just Once you produce the body, you're done. Like That he's raised from the dead. Um, it, it was, it's a very stunning, um, 
assertion. So the empty tomb, the fact that the tomb was empty, the fact that the, uh, the linen wrappings, the way they were shaped, the resurrection appearances, they were well known. The disciples, this is what you were getting to, uh, Casey, in your paper, the transformed disciples. The fact you have uneducated Jewish fishermen who turn into worldwide traveling evangelists for, and turn the world upside down and die for their faith is proof that something actually happened. I should say evidence that something actually happened. The, uh, the observance on the first day of the week, we see that. Uh, the fact, what I mean by that is that the fact that the church worships on Sunday. Why would the church worship on the first day of the week? The Sabbath is Saturday, the, se- the seventh day of the week. The reason the church worships on the first day of the week is why? That's the day Jesus rose from the dead. There's no other reason. No other reason. Okay. The existence of the church itself is proof or evidence for the resurrection of Christ. The ascension of Christ. A couple of facts about the ascension. That Jesus' ascension is described both in the Gospels and in Acts. And it's a fulfillment of Psalm 110, verse 1. And um, the fact that the risen Lord is the one who saves us is important. Significance of the ascension. The ascension ended the earthly ministry of Christ. It ended the earthly ministry of Christ. And the ascension ended the period of his humiliation. So there's two aspects of Christ's comings. We see his humiliation and his glory. So he comes in peace and then in war. He comes as a lamb and then a lion. So we see him come first in humility, then in justice. So we'll see him come again. But this ends his period of humiliation. His glory is no longer veiled. And this is the first entrance of resurrected humanity into heaven and new work in heaven. We see that in Hebrews 4 and 6. And because he ascended, the Holy Spirit could come. Okay. As he said, if, if I do not leave you, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. Okay. There's a whole book. I have a book called um, Exalted in the Heavens. And it's about the ascension of Christ and the ex- eternal state. It's a fascinating little book. haven't gotten all the way through it. Um, but uh, that, that not a lot has been written about the ascension and the eternal uh, the place where Christ, how Christ reigns now from the throne of Christ. But it's a, it's a very interesting uh, I, thing to probably explore some more. Somebody needs to take a Ph.D. and do a, more work in that. So any boys can do that or girls. I'm sure you all can handle that. Uh, let's talk about the temptation of Christ. This gets a little bit fun here, so let's talk about this. Uh, I'm a little bit of discussion. Um, the, the great temptation is uh, with Satan in, in the wilderness. We see that in... Um, Several of the Gospels, uh, it's a testing, according to the book, his temptation was a testing for demonstration of his purity and sinlessness without any possibility or in t- of enticement to evil, as James 1.13. So we have two basic ideas about Christ and his temptation. One would be peccability, okay, peccability. And then impeccability. Um, the question is simply this. We all know the, the question is not did Christ sin? Because everyone agrees Christ did not sin. Um, but whether could he have sinned? And in Hebrews 4, it says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, for was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Charles Hodge, a very famous uh, Reformed theologian, holds this view of peccability. This is the view that Christ could have sinned, but he didn't. 
Okay. The other view, impeccability, um, teaches that Christ's temptation was genuine, but it was impossible for him to sin. That Christ could not have sinned. Uh, and the, uh, the reasons for that is because uh, peccability only relates to his human nature, and since his two natures cannot be separate, that is, his divine nature cannot sin, it must be affirmed that Christ himself could not sin. So, I don't know if you follow what the point or the logic behind this. It's a logical it's a logical question, not necessarily a doctrinal question. It's, are his natures, we do not believe that his natures are separate. Like, we don't talk about the humanity of Christ separate from the deity of Christ. We don't say, well, that was his humanity talking, that was his deity talking. We talk about Christ as a united person with two natures, right? Humanity and deity. And with that being the case, his deity could not sin because it's impossible for God to sin. Um, so because they're united, it's also impossible for him to sin, period. That's the, that's the, the thinking. The evidences for this are the immutability of Christ, the omnipotence of Christ, the omniscience of Christ, the deity of Christ, the nature of temptation, the fact that uh, God is not tempted by evil, and the will of Christ. Christ could only have one will to do the, the will of his Father and the authority of Christ, John ten eighteen. It's interesting. It's an interesting discussion. Did you guys have an opinion? about which side that you prefer, which side do you like, peccability or impeccability? We have five minutes. I'm just curious. Go ahead. You pointed out, I forget where it was in the book, but um, it says in right before he's tempted, so right after um, his baptism, the Holy Spirit came upon him and led him out into the wilderness. Drove him, yeah. So the Holy Spirit was sending him to be tempted. Right. So if Christ could have sinned, it's like the Holy Spirit was putting him in a place where he could sin. Right. That's a very interesting, interesting perspective. Yeah. The picture of the Spirit, especially Luke chapter 4, I think it is. The Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness. Okay. It's not just that he led him out there. He drove him. Not from the front, from behind almost pushing. Right. So it's a very... Okay, so could, 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 I hold to impeccability. I don't think it really matters. It's not a big deal. I don't, I think it has to be with some people say, well, how could he have really sympathized with our weaknesses if he could not have sinned? I don't think that necessarily follows. Um, he faced, in fact, the worst kind of temptation, direct, subtle temptation from Satan himself. I mean, think about what Satan was tempting Jesus to do to abuse his power, to turn stone to bread, right? To feed his flesh. What was the second temptation? It depends on which order you look at, but the second temptation, right? Where he takes him up to the, the temple and he says, cast yourself down. What's the, what does he use as a reason for doing that? Do you remember? Be ruler over all the That's the third temptation. I'm not there yet. Well, I mean, it depends, it depends on which order, because the one is thematically ordered, one is chronologically ordered in the gospel. But, yeah, yeah. He says, cast yourself down, uh, because the Bible says he has given his angels charge over you, lest you cast, ta- dash your foot against a stone. What's the irony of, of that? Think about it. What ended up happening at the end of the gospel? Jesus not only had his foot dashed against a stone, he was put to the cross. 
Okay. Satan's, Satan's temptation was, throw yourself down. God won't let you be hurt. Not only was God the Father going to let him get hurt, God would, lead, he would be led to the cross and die. Okay, so Satan totally misunderstands and misappropriates Scripture, and he's saying, presume upon God and just, you know, God, God would never let his son be hurt, which is, which is a very big misunderstanding of what would happen in the story. So that, that's something that I don't hear a lot of people talk about, but I think it's very important. That's a very bad twisting, this twisting of Scripture. The last one, of course, is, is uh, look at all the kingdoms of the earth. I will, I will give them to you if you bow down and worship me. That's insinuating that he has the kingdoms, that they belong to Satan, which they sort of do, in a sense. They're under his domain in the, in the current moment. Um, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about Christ doing away with all authorities and all principalities and subsuming authority under himself. And so there's some truth to that, but it's shortcutting his, shortcutting what he knows will come. His, 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 his um, Passion Week, all the work that has to go into that in order to gain something. Quickly. So the kinds of temptation that Jesus faced were not like, hey, you want a cookie or, hey, you know, immorality, like obvious, you know, or silly. It's like very subtle and very devious temptation stuff that that, that is the full force of temptation. You cannot imagine Satan himself and all of his trickery and all of his, um, I don't know how you say it, but not only, I don't want to say wisdom, but, you know, skill, cunning. cunning, thank you, great word, cunning, subtlety in trying to deceive Christ. Thoughts? Yes? Do you think that Jesus ever stubbed his toe on something or smashed his thumb with the hammer when he was working in his father's carpenter shop? Sure, sure. I do not think that, okay, so I think it's a misunderstanding to think that Jesus, like if he would have played basketball, would never miss a hoop, you know. Or that he always was perfect in um, his skill and his human skill level. Okay, his deity um, and his humanity being in united. It's the Bible says he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. There was a natural human development. That means that uh, he had to learn things, and I don't exactly understand how it is that as a that that hu- human being uh, deity in Christ develops in those ways, but he was by far, he was not in his glorified self yet. I, I don't completely un, uh, understand all the details of that, but I do, I do think that he cried as a baby. I think that he, cried as an adult. yeah, yeah. I think he was tired. Yeah. I know he was tired. He was hunger, hungered, right? He was a hungered, as I said, he was hungry, thirsty. thirsty. He was in pain. He had grief. Uh, he cried. Um, go ahead. I always thought that when it when it says there in, in Luke that he that he uh, grew and, and he learned um, that he learned but he learned perfectly mm-hmm. um, and so can you can you imagine that his younger brothers and sisters this is just a uh, hypothetical I guess that Jesus comes home from his brothers and sisters y'all come home from from school at the synagogue and the brother and sister, oh, Jesus made straight A's again. <laughs> There's, you know, there could have been some resentment there along the way. Yeah, very possible. Yeah, Derek? 
I kind of have like a, a random question. Um, kind of going back to what you're talking about, like the Satan obviously using scripture. Um, do you, is there any evidence in the Bible, or maybe like this is just like a personal theory? Do you think that uh, Satan had like an understanding of why Jesus came to Earth, and then maybe tried to tempt him to like, hey, if I can get him to sin, then I know that that he won't be able to die for the sin. I I, like, I think like I think that Satan did not understand that Jesus was going to die. I think that Satan was driving Judas to kill. In fact, I think the whole emphasis of, of Satan's activity on earth during, Je- during Jesus' life on earth had to do with killing him because the understanding was he would take the throne of his father, David. I think that was the, the Bible calls that the mystery. Mysterion is the Greek word. It has to, we think of mysteries and we think of like, you know, oh, I don't, you know, like the Scooby-Doo mystery kind of stuff. But the, but the biblical word mystery has to do with something that was previously hidden, but now is revealed. So um, that's why we use mystery. To, you know, when we talk about mysteries, like it, it's hidden and then it gets revealed. Um, but in a very technical term, mysterion has this idea that, that, that it was there, but it was, it was not abundantly clear from the Old Testament, that the Son of God would die on the cross for the sins of, the, of mankind. Now, looking back, once it happens, it's, it's, it's plainly there. You can see it. But to the disciples, it's like, what is happening? Like, he's supposed to be Messiah. He rode in on a donkey. Like, he, everybody knows what that means. Like, he is son of David. Everyone is accepting him, and he's going to rule and reign. And the fact that he doesn't rule and reign right there is confused, so confusing to them that in Acts chapter 1, they, he's getting ready to ascend to the Father. They're like, is it, is it right now where you're going to establish your kingdom? And he's like, it's not the times and the seasons. Like, I don't know exactly. It may have been the close Jesus came to losing his temper, right? I mean, uh, I say that with all respect. But, like, the, um, the picture there is that, that they, everyone, it was the, I call it the, the mystery of the, of the crucifixion. The fact that, that, that was, there was completely, Jesus closed the eyes of his disciples. He intentionally closed the eyes of his disciples so that he did not speak of the resurrection. He spoke about it to them, but they did not understand what he was saying. So much so that when he dies, they're not waiting by the tomb for him to rise again. They're hiding, scared. Jesus' enemies know that he's going to rise. They're all like, Jesus said he was going to rise again. We better post some guards there. But Jesus' own men are like, oh, what's going to happen? You know, we don't know what's going on. So it's amazing that God does that on purpose so that the, the, the men, well, reverse it. So imagine that Jesus' disciples, Jesus dies, and the disciples are like, don't worry. He's going to rise again in three days. Okay. Then, then what do you suspect if you're, like, suspicious? What do you suspect? Okay, they got some trick up their sleeve. They're going to go steal his body. They're going to, like, pretend like he rose again, and then they're going to try something again. But they weren't doing that. They're scared out of their minds. They go and they hide. It's only the, the enemies of Christ who take that seriously and are thinking, you know, we got to do something because they might steal his body. And, and the disciples are floored when Jesus rises from the dead right there. They totally did not expect that. And so it's only after all this happens... That, that Jesus spends time, like Luke 24, teaching them. He says, oh, those of you, or oh, you are like stubborn to hear everything that's written in the, God, you know, written in the law and the prophets concerning me. And uh, even slow of hearing, you know, and, and he goes back and he shows them all along the way. So that's my, my person. I think that's pretty well attested. I don't think Satan understood at all the death of Christ was coming. I think he thought it was his biggest victory. So kind of like the disciples, they thought he was coming to establish his kingdom. Yeah. 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 And I think Satan thought that too. And so Satan thought if I could destroy him, Mm -hmm. 
then he can't establish his kingdom. What he didn't understand was by destroying him, by killing him, he didn't kill him, he gave up his... When I say that, you know what I mean. He gave up his ghost. So by leading him to the cross, that he signed his own... Satan signed his own death warrant, so to speak, right? So it's, it's God using the wickedness of man for his own glory, in a sense. If people... It's a great example of people doing what they want to do and rebelling against God, but God turns it all things together for good. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. Okay, let's keep going. Um, the offices of Christ. We have three offices here. The prophet, he's established, as I mentioned, in, in Deuteronomy 18. And I call Jesus a prophet. I'm not diminishing his deity. I am just re- referencing the fact that his role as a prophet, as a speaker for God. Old Testament prophets are those who speak on the authority of God. So they say, thus says the Lord. And Jesus does not say, thus says the Lord. He says, I say, okay, huge difference. You don't see people doing this. No one, no, Jeremiah doesn't say, uh, Moses said, but I say, Jesus says that, okay? Uh, you, it's hard to overstate how powerful that is. He's a prophet. He is a priest. Uh, Psalm 110 verse 4 establishes Christ's priesthood. Not according to Levite, the Levites, or Korah, or any of the other orders of the priests, but according to Melchizedek, okay, uh, my king is righteous, Melchizedek is what that means, and, and, and Melchizedek shows up as a king and a priest prior to the law, right, he shows up in the book of Genesis, out of nowhere, and he has no lineage, we don't know who his parents were, um, and so Christ continually represents the believer because he lives forever. Christ completely saves the believer because his intercession never ceases. And Christ has no sin to impede his work as priest. And Christ finished his priestly work by one offering. He is both the offering and the priest. Number three, he is king. Genesis 49.10 talks about Messiah coming from Judah and reigning. 2 Samuel 7.16, Messiah would have a dynasty. Psalm 2, the installation of the son as king in Jerusalem. I read that, I think this past Sunday, Psalm 2. Uh, he'll be enthroned. Psalm 110, Messiah will subjugate his enemy. Uh, I have here all the three offices of Christ, his prophet, priest, and king, are the key to the purposes of the incarnation. His prophetic office was involved with his revealing of God's message. The priestly office was related to his saving and intercessory work. His kingly office gave him the right to reign over Israel and the entire earth. All the divine intentions of these three historic offices are perfectly culminated in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a tremendously, a great way to say this. I couldn't say it better. Um, Christ is is prophet, priest, and king. And it is um, powerful to consider the failures of the prophets, the failures of the priests, and the failures of the kings. And Christ perfectly embodies all three offices. It was also inappropriate in the Old Testament for kings to do the work of a priest. Think about what Saul did by sacrificing animals. And Samuel comes to him and says, what are you doing? Okay? It was inappropriate for the prophet to act as a king. He consulted the king, or he, he uh, gave advice to the king. He did not usurp the king. Right? He directly the king, thus says the Lord. It was, it, this Christ is all three in one. The present ministry of Christ, just a very short chap, uh, section here. Christ is building his church. There's the formation of the body, um, the direction of the body, Colossians 1, the nurture of the body, Ephesians 5, the cleansing of the body, Ephesians 5. Okay, the giving gifts to the body. Christ is building his church. You see constantly in the New Testament the work that Christ is doing to, to edify or to build up his church. Christ is also praying for believers. That's 10-2. Christ 
Intercession assures the security of our salvation. His intercession, his presence before the Father, his spoken word, his continual intercession. Um, Christ's intercession restores us to fellowship when that fellowship is broken through sin. I, I like uh, this passage, 1 John 2. I'll be preaching on this uh, a week from Sunday. Um, his, he is our advocate, our goel, our go-between. Uh, actually, that's, I think that's the Hebrew word. I don't remember what it is in, in Greek. Um, uh, he is First uh, John two. He is our advocate. It's our uh, Parakletos, our, yeah. our Paraclete. Yeah, our right. Mm-hmm. Christ is preparing a heavenly abode for us. In John 14, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house are many mansions or rooms. picture here is actually of a... And that happened in the Middle East, the ancient Near East. You had, um, uh, you know, Big Daddy would have the house, you know. And then what he would do is he would make, make little houses attached to the big house. And that was how often the rooms, okay... The idea here is that in my father's house are many rooms, are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you, I've got to prepare a place for you. And the preparing a place, you'll be part of the household, part of the kingdom, part of the household. Okay. Christ is producing fruit in the lives of believers, John 15, the vine and the branches. Yeah, without him, we can do nothing. Christ is giving us opportunity to produce fruit. Then I just put a quote here for the future work of Christ, that the hope exhibited in the scripture is the ultimate restoration of all things under Messiah. In one phase, his coming will fulfill the glorious hope for the church, an event of resurrection and reunion. In another phase, his coming will be a judgment on unbelieving nations and Satan, and it will be the rescue of his people Israel and the inauguration of the millennial, millennial reign. That is, our personal, that is our church take and my personal take on the end times, meaning that there is several aspects to the second coming of Christ. He, the scripture seems to say that there is a coming in the clouds where he will receive his believers in the clouds and there is a coming to earth when he touches down again and then there is uh, of course the establishment of a kingdom is described in the um, the book of revelation wow i can't believe we made it to the end um thoughts or questions yeah give me one give me two just speak as fast as i possibly can yeah um I wish we could um, look up all these verses, but we just don't have the time right now. What? We have like a couple minutes. Anybody have any thoughts or any any comments or questions or a couple things I want you to take away? Big takeaways, like just this is not for a test or anything, just kind of in your mind. Hypostatic union. Okay. The Incarnation, the importance of Christ adding to himself deity, coming in the form of a servant, the idea that he is not diminished, he's undiminished deity, right? Uh, in human form. Uh, the, the work of Christ. I, I, I would love for you to read, if you read the Gospels, I would love for you to read the Gospels and try to see the meaning behind his miracles and his works. Like nothing Jesus does is by accident or just kind of casual. It, it always, the more you read the Bible, you'll start to see, oh, he was doing that because of this. Like, 
it starts to make more and more sense. And if you read the Old Testament, you'll understand the New Testament. That's the other thing is, is like a lot of people don't like the Old Testament because it feels um, unrelatable. It feels cumbersome. It feels heavy. It feels, it doesn't feel Christocentric. People say, well, where's Christ? You know, I don't see Christ. But you cannot understand what Christ is doing in his ministry and in his work. In context, you can't understand it. You don't, I mean, you can understand the outline, but it's like really fuzzy and you don't see the whole picture unless you understand like everything that's behind it. Um, and it's, it's very, it's just beautiful. Uh, there's so much uh, going on in everything that Jesus does. Every, every, every story he tells, um, every parable, every, every uh, sermon, um, and like I said, just just the comparison between he, he as a him as a um, prophet and someone like Isaiah or Micah, uh, and their prophetic ministry. And think of prophets in the Old Testament, how flawed they are. Think of Jonah as a flawed prophet. I mean, think how flawed he is. And and, and he and he speaks for God, and God God works. And so Jesus comes, and he speaks for God as well. But he's he's not flawed like Jonah. He's not flawed like Jeremiah. You know. Or like uh, some of the others, right? Yeah. Question: Going back to the peccability and pickability. Sure. If um, if someone, you know, if, if we go the route of saying like well, Jesus couldn't have sinned, mm-hmm. and people, you know, come back and question like, well, then how can we really look at Jesus as an example? Right. Because like, yeah, he lived the kind of life that we did, but and you know, had the same kind of troubles, so to say. But if he, at the end of the day, couldn't actually sin, then really like. How can we relate to him? Yeah, it, it doesn't. Um, the 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 I should say the uh, potential for failure doesn't make the temptation less any less. Um, yeah, or any less hard. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, like the temptation itself. So he wasn't vulnerable under. That... Well, he, he he was he was he was vulnerable in the sense that it, it did it was difficult. I think that the temptation was difficult. I think it was hard. I don't think it was simple. But what's in, but what's difficult about it if he's not going to sin, right? Is that it's it is the um that that's I don't I don't really know. I don't really know. It's hard to say. So it could be psychological in the sense that maybe we experience people who ridicule our faith and cast all kinds of dispersions on the Bible and uh, history of Christianity. Maybe, but yeah. we're not going to deny the faith. The, possibly, yeah. That, that's an analogy. I, I, I don't know. It's, it, and we're, we're out of time, so I, I, maybe we can come back to this again. But that, that, is, that is the crux of the question. Is like, is, is it possible? How, how could, how is he? And I guess the question, in what way does Jesus sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in all ways like we are? In what way? And the way that he sympathizes is not as someone... In other words, you don't have to have fallen in a sin to sympathize with the temptation to that sin. Sure, okay, right. so, so let me explain it this way. I, when a guy falls... I, I, I have been faithful to my wife, okay? I'm very thankful. I don't, I'm, not a pride, I'm not prideful about that. I'm just grateful, right? But I... I can sympathize. I, I know what it's like to be tempted. 
Okay, I know what that's like. And I, when people fall, I, I know the process they went through when they fell, even though I haven't actually myself fallen. Um, now, it's possible. It is possible for me to fall. It is very, you know, it's possible. But I think that, the, the, that there's a difference between the decision to fall and the actual stress that places or the temptation. Does that make sense? That's how I process it. And I don't really know if that makes sense or not. Because I'm not, we're dealing, we're dealing with something that's outside of scripture. It's kind of like, yeah. well, you know, what could have happened? And we're yeah. trying to make sense of it. Casey? I'm thinking in my mind about uh, sin. Is it homartia, missing the mark? Yeah. Um, and so missing the mark is an archery term. And so Jesus hits the bullseye every time. Not because he, in my opinion, I, I think impeccability sure. is possible. But like you said, it doesn't really matter. Um, he could have missed the mark, but he never did because he was perfect. And so when you look at sin in the, in the way that anything other than a bullseye is sin, and, and Jesus always hit the bullseye, I, I don't know. I'm yeah. probably not putting that in words well. No, it's, it is a tricky thing, and that's why, that's why I kind of want to throw it out there for a few minutes is because it, it gets your juices going. It's something to think about. But, like, I, I've actually been on both sides of this. I think at either times I've written papers probably for both sides, you know, I don't know. And if you go through my, if you find papers I've written, you know, uh, in my computer, some, you'll probably find both sides. Like in my finite mind, it's almost like, I was not to make it, you know, in the most respectful way, but it's like, it's almost more impressive if he could sin but didn't as opposed right. to like was tempted but obviously he didn't sin because he couldn't I sin. I kind of goes, just, yeah. It's one of those things just, Again, it's kind of hard to comprehend. It goes also back, and I'll let you go with this. It goes back to the, um, I said earlier, you can hold, only hold two watermelons at once. I don't know if you remember I said that. This picture of like, God cannot be tempted by evil. Jesus is God. Jesus was tempted. So, wait, what? <laughs> you know? yeah. So you have to like, you have to understand in what way, you know, so God, Jesus is 100% man, 100% God. Yeah. Wait, yeah. How does that work? Um, there are some things that are beyond our grasp, and we have to take it at God's word. Say God's word says it. Ah. So with this kind of stuff, it's really beyond scripture. Right. It's more like it doesn't. It's just trying how we're processing that. Okay. Right. I've kept you, kept you too long. Thank you very much. Great job, everybody. We'll start on the spirit in two weeks. Two weeks.